Look at verse 12. Let's read verse 12 together out loud. Can we do that? Ready? Here we go. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The title of the sermon this morning is this, What Does It Mean to Believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? The Bible tells us this. It says the devils believe and tremble. You go throughout the New Testament, you find that the demons that would speak out in the presence of Jesus, they all agreed that he was the Son of God. But the demons are not going to heaven. There is a way to believe in Jesus and not become the child of God. There is a way to believe in Jesus and not go to heaven someday. And so we're going to talk about the levels of believing, and I want you to check your heart this morning. Have you totally and truly believed in Jesus to be your way into heaven? Let's pray this morning. Lord, help us as we dive into this, the, the book of John, and we see various people throughout the book, Lord, who came from all walks of life, but they all were brought to the same point of decision, and that was a heart faith in you, a heart faith to believe. Lord, in this room today, there are all kinds of people. Lord, some come from wealth, some come from poverty, some, uh, Lord, have had an easy life, others have had a challenging life, and some are going through hardships and others are standing on mountaintops. Lord, help us to understand that wherever we're coming from in life, that the, at the foot of the cross, it's level. And all are welcome there and all are to be saved the same way. So, Lord, may we all be encouraged this morning. And, Lord, may we all learn about how uh, to trust in you. And then, Lord, may some exercise faith in you before it's eternally too late. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There's a lot of people in this world that know what they believe, but don't really know why they believe it. When I was a 20, 21, 22-year-old man, I look back on that time and I realized that I had a lot of really strong opinions in my early 20s. And most of the opinions that I had were given to me by other people, but had not been truly tested. And I have changed a lot of opinions since I was 22, 23 years old, because life has taught me that some of what was given to me while I fervently believed it, was not quite accurate, uh, and my paradigm in life has shifted. Many people go through life and they think in a way that's shallow. They believe in a way that's shallow. There's a famous preacher from the 1800s named Jonathan Whitfield, actually or earlier than that even, but Jonathan Whitfield, he was over in England and he was preaching uh, to a group of coal miners and uh, men who were working there in the coal mines. And after he got through preaching, a, a base man wandered up to him, a simple-minded man wandered up to him, and uh, they began to talk. And Jonathan Edwards asked the man, he said, well, what do you believe? And uh, the coal miner thought for a minute, and he said, well, I, I reckon I believe what my church believes. And so Mr. Whitfield responded. He said, well, well, what does your church believe? And the coal miner thought, and he said, well, I reckon my church believes what I believe. <laughs> Circular reasoning. Mr. Whitfield could see he just wasn't getting anywhere. And so he looked at the man and he said, what do you and your church believe? And the man thought, and he said, I reckon we believe the same thing. He had one thing down, and that was being slippery. Many uh, Christians seem to know as much about what they believe as this coal miner. Um, again, I ask, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? 
What does that mean? Now, some folks believe in their head. God wants you not only to believe about the facts of the gospel in your head, He wants you to accept His salvation in your heart. In your heart. Many people grew up in a religious setting, especially here in this area. They know the story of Jesus. They know about the virgin birth. They know that Jesus is a tr- part of a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy uh, Spirit. They've heard the facts of the Via Dolorosa. They know how He died on the cross and how He rose from the dead. They have a head knowledge of Jesus, but they've never experienced a heart belief. They've never truly trusted in Christ from the heart. It's been religious. It's been uh, uh, formal. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been ritualistic, but it's never been something that's been done from the heart. Let me illustrate this way. Your mind can know that honey is sweet. People can tell you it's sweet. You can read books about it. You can go to a college class and hear about how honey is made and understand every detail of the fact that honey is sweet. But if you haven't actually tasted it, then you know it in your head, but not with your heart. When you actually taste it, you experience it for for yourself. You know it in a full way, and you know it down in your heart. People say that they trust the bank, but they will not give their money to the banker. People say they trust the doctor, but they don't go to the doctor when they're sick. Right? I can go on and on with examples where we say we believe theoretically in our head, but we haven't actually exercised faith with our heart. Let me, uh, let me explain to you this way. Tuesday morning, I'm going to get in my car with suitcases galore, and my wife and my son and my daughter are going to climb in, and I'm going to drive them to Newark, New Jersey, and they're going to climb on a plane, and they're going to fly to Peru, all right? And uh, they're leaving Tuesday. I'm leaving to go there as well, but I'm not leaving till November 1st. So that means I'm going to be about a month by myself. Everybody say, aww. <laughs> Don't you feel bad for me that my wife and my kids are abandoning me, abandoning me For almost a month. You say, well, Pastor, surely you can survive. Well, I don't really know how to cook. So I'm going to be eating a lot of cereal and microwave dinners. Amen? Uh, But we're going to get by, and I am accepting invitations to eat at your homes. Amen? I'll just throw that out there now. Um, I'm not being facetious either. Um, um, But anyway, uh, my wife and kids are going to go to Peru. Now, we've already bought the tickets. We've gotten everything in order, and with uh, COVID and all that, we've had to take extra um, precautions in order to make sure we're, we've cro- dotted all our I's, we've crossed all our T's, and we've gotten them ready. Now, Angela and Matthew and April can tell me all day that they believe that that flight is going to Peru, but if I get them to the airport and they get through TSA and they get to the gate and they won't get on the plane, you see, they, they can believe here, but unless they get on the plane... They don't believe right here. You all with me? Many people believe in Jesus here, but they've not actually believed in Jesus in the heart. Here. Um, Many people are 18 inches away from heaven. That's the distance between your head and your heart. They know most of it up here, but they've never exercised faith here with the heart, the mind 
the will and the emotions. Jesus was getting ready to go to heaven, or rather getting ready to go to Calvary and getting ready to be crucified. And he had his disciples with them, and he could sense they were troubled because in part he was troubled. And uh, he looked at his disciples and he told them, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Further down in John chapter 14, we find verse 6. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said this to them. Listen to this. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He said this, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Christianity has been labeled as a narrow-minded religion. Narrow-minded. Oh, you say there's only one way to heaven? What about all the people in the world that, uh, that don't put their faith in Jesus? Is God so cold and heartless that He would send them to hell? And listen, we get our logic turned all around and sideways and bent funny. God created the heavens and the earth. It is His world. It is His heaven. And it is His rules to get in there. If I threw a birthday party at my house and I said, listen, I'm turning, let's say in a couple of years, I'm turning 40 and all of you are welcome to come to my birthday party at my house. But I have one rule. You have to come through the front door. I can see someone getting all out of sorts over that, crossing their arms and saying, that Pastor Lejeune, he's just narrow-minded. I wanted to go into the second story window. (laughs) It's my birthday party. You're invited to come. And uh, being the cantankerous one that you are, you show up with a ladder. Put that up to the window. Climb up and knock on, hoping someone will let you in. A whole lot of people are trying to get into heaven another way. Jesus said, I'm sorry, it's my heaven. You want to come into my heaven, the front door is wide open. The front door is the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that's narrow-minded. I think that's generous and welcoming and inviting. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, In verse 13 and 14, he said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. Speaking of that front door to heaven. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For, listen to what he said, Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. That's speaking of hell. Then he said this, And many there be that go in thereat. What does that mean? That means that, The broad path, the popular path, is falling off, is falling into hell. People are getting to the end of their life, and the path they've chosen to walk to get them into heaven is leading them instead to the wrong destination of hell. Do you know that what's popular is not always right? Jesus said in verse 14, he said, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There was a bumper sticker that was popular in the 1980s and early 1990s that read this. He that dies with the most toys wins. How many of you remember that bumper sticker when it was around? He that dies with the most toys wins. You know what? When you die, you don't get to take your toys with you. They get left behind. Then you're faced with this reality. Was I on the broad path that led to destruction or the narrow path that led to life eternal? According to the Bible, it is a heart faith that puts you on the narrow way that gets you to heaven. Most people walking planet earth have not truly believed in their heart in Jesus for salvation. 
They have not been made new in Christ. They do not have the hope of heaven deep down in their soul. This morning I would like to take the Bible, God's holy word, and help each of you who haven't already put your belief in Jesus to be on your way to heaven. I, some of you came into the door this morning and you were doing your friend a courtesy by coming to church with them. They got down on their knees and they begged you and they promised to take you out to eat after church maybe. By the way, if your friend didn't promise to take you out of church, ask them on the way out the door. Amen. Um, uh, you're... Uh, you're, uh, they, they bribe you some way to get you here, right? And uh, But however it is, you're doing them a courtesy. You came in the door to church, and here you are. You did a friend a favor, and you came to church. And now that you're here, I want you to learn, really listen in intently here. You may have come in the door with some false idea of how to get to heaven. You may have come in the door thinking that you were not worthy of heaven. You may have come in the door unsure about how to get to heaven. When you walk out the door of our church this morning, I want you to know from the Bible, from the Bible, how it is you can know that you're going to heaven. So what we're going to do over the next several minutes is we're going to take a journey with Jesus. Uh, I'd like to show you four different types of people and how they did or did not choose to believe in Jesus for salvation. All right, so if you received a bulletin program on your way in this morning, if you flip that over to the back, you'll see that my sermon outline is there on the back and you can fill in the blanks as we go. The points also will be up here on the screen. So let me encourage you to take notes as we go this morning. Number one, notice the scholar that believed. The scholar that believed. We start John chapter 1. Turn two chapters over to John chapter number 3. John chapter 3. And we're going to look at a handful of verses here in the chapter. Look with me at verse number 1. John 3 Verse 1, and if you're with someone who's unfamiliar with how to get over there, uh, be courteous and reach over and help them be able to read the passage along with us here. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, there was a man of the Pharisees. Now, let me pause here. To be a Pharisee meant you were a scholar. To become a Pharisee, you had to memorize the first five books of our Bible or the Pentateuch. Genesis and Deuteronomy had every word memorized. You had gone to school. You had been well-trained. You were educated. You were the elite of the elite of the religious world. You were very intelligent. If you, you didn't have an IIQ, you could not get through to become a Pharisee. All right. So when we read the word Pharisee, I just want you to understand who is coming to Jesus. This isn't some schmuck off the street. This guy is well educated. He's got more degrees uh, than there are on the Fahrenheit scale, right? He's got all these letters behind his name. This guy is smart. And not only is he a Pharisee, we'll see in a minute, he's a rabbi, meaning he is one of the leaders of the Pharisees. So he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Look back at verse number 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, or a ruler of the Pharisees. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, speaking to Jesus, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles as thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or surely, surely, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you know much about Jesus and you've ever studied uh, him and the Bible very much, you know that Jesus was very good at throwing people what I'll call a curveball. He has this man coming to him, asking him a question uh, and acknowledging that he's a great teacher of God. And Jesus just throws at him a riddle. He says to him, he says, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to go to heaven, 
then you're going to need to be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking to himself, what in the world does it mean to be born again? Now, if you've been around American culture at all, you've probably heard the term born again at some point. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. That's a fringe Christian term that, that's, that uh, is becoming less popular with time. But the concept of being born again uh, it, it here uh, was strange and odd to Nicodemus. God was saying to the scholarly man, let me talk to you about birth. Let me talk to you about babies. Let me talk to you about those that know nothing. Nicodemus would say to him, uh, down in the chapter, he'd say, Jesus, how could I be born again? Are you expecting me to go back in my mother's womb and come out a second time? That's crazy. And Jesus says, I'm not talking about a physical birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. I'm talking about being made anew in Christ. In today's culture, we move way too fast. We are rushing through life to be as successful as possible. Many use their intelligence to make lots of money and buy nice things. We hang our diplomas on the wall with pride. We know how to show off our intelligence to others. But if you were to stop and do nothing, you were to stop and sit in silence, you were to turn off the cell phone, the TV, take the headphones out, and sit in absolute silence, what's deep down inside would come up. And oftentimes for people who have intelligence, what they find is that there is something missing deep down inside of them, something they cannot explain. Jesus had come onto the scene and Nicodemus could see that Jesus had something intangible that he was missing. Jesus had something down inside of him that Nicodemus didn't have. Yes, he had all the book smarts. He knew the law. He knew the, 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 the Old Testament. He had all of that down, but something down inside was still missing. Look at verse 14 through verse number 18, and Jesus elaborates further what it means to be born again. John three fourteen, the Bible says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Nicodemus, being a scholar of the Old Testament, having even the verses memorized, knew that a serpent had gone through and bitten the Israelites in the desert uh, as a punishment of God. And God had told Moses to take a, a brazen rod and wrap a serpent around it. You still see that symbol on ambulances today. And Moses was commanded, walk through the camp with this uh, a rod with a serpent on it. And whoever will by faith look at that rod will be made whole. Jesus is playing on what Nicodemus knows and saying just as the serpent needed to be lifted up for them to be healed of the snake bite, mankind needs to turn and look at the cross of Christ to be healed from the sin bite. Look at verse 15. That whosoever, look, at, look here, that whosoever goes to church will have eternal life. Is that what it says? Whosoever is a good person. Whosoever is honest and doesn't cheat on their taxes. Whosoever makes a lot of money. No, that's not what it says. It says that whosoever, and here's the prerequisite to get into heaven. Whosoever believeth in him, Jesus, whosoever believeth in him, should not perish, should not go to hell, but have everlasting life. And then the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him. There it is again should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be 
saved, might be rescued, rescued from hell, rescued to heaven. He that believeth. Again, he that believeth. There's the prerequisite. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only Son of God. As we'll see throughout the Gospel of John this morning, salvation is not about your religious denomination or lack thereof. The way you and I get into heaven is simply by believing in Jesus for salvation. Let me word it this way. One day you get to the gate of heaven. There is not going to be an angel there saying to you, let me see it. Let me see your denominational card. What church were you a part of on earth? Okay, yep, you can go in or nope, you're going to hell. God does not care what church you went to. He wants to know this. What did you do with Jesus? Did you believe in Him for salvation from your heart? Did you taste of salvation the way someone tastes of honey? Or do you just simply know the facts in your head? Many people go through life and they're spiritually bankrupt with a full bank account. They've got 401Ks and IRAs. They've got money invested in the stock market. Uh, They've got uh, uh, two, three houses. They've got a three-car garage. Nothing wrong with those things. If God's blessed you financially and given you a good mind and you've used that to earn money, that's great. But let me just tell you what I see as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People who are successful on earth are completely ignoring heaven and hell. They're going to get to the other side of eternity and find that they don't have anything waiting for them. Because they were so busy building up something on earth. Imagine if I, you would, that I took a young man and I said to him, I, you, you, you're going to go into a room with all the money of the world. And all the money of the world is sitting in this room. All of it. All the trillions of dollars that, that have been printed up, that are used on planet earth. All the money in the world will be there. I, I got one rule for you. You can go in that room through the front door and you must leave the back door. But here's the deal. All the money you want to stuff in your socks and down your shirt and your pockets wherever else you can think of to put it, is yours. But when you walk out that back door, you don't get to take any of it with you. You've got to put it all back. You think to yourself, okay, well, that's great. I get to go in there and play with it for a little bit. There might, might even be a couple stores in there you can spend some of it at. But, you know, when I leave the back door, i got to leave it. Here's the truth, my friend. The front door is birth and the back door is death. God's given you a good mind. I'm thankful for that. Don't let your intelligence get in the way of simply understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ is you exercising faith in Jesus to be saved. You say, it's got to be more complicated than that. Nope. Jesus made it so simple, even a child could do it. We'll look at that thought here more in a moment. You know what? Nicodemus did believe in Jesus. In fact, Nicodemus was one of the men that helped take Jesus' body off the cross and lay him in the tomb. Privately, he believed Publicly, we don't know what he did to believe, but Jesus tur- or Nicodemus turned to Christ and set his intellect to the side and exercised his heart faith. You may be here this morning and say, I just need to see more. I need to understand more. I challenge you, jump in with that brain God's given you and understand all that you need to understand. But at the end of the day, it's not about what you can touch and hold. It's about how you can believe in Jesus who lived, died, and rose again from the dead. The scholar that believed. Let's look at number two. The sinner that believed. The sinner that believed. Go one chapter over to John chapter number four. John four. And look with me at verse number six. As the story goes, Jesus is leaving 
his hometown of Capernaum, and he's heading toward Jerusalem where there are feasts that um, he is a part of, part of the uh, uh, national celebration. The folks would travel from the outskirts of Jerusalem into Jerusalem, and they would celebrate their Judaism together. And uh, Jesus was heading to Jerusalem for one of these times of celebration. And uh, usually when you left Capernaum, you would travel around Samaria, because Samaritans were half-breeds, they were half-Jew, half-Gentile, and uh, the Jews did not get along with Samaritans, so they would travel around Samaria, John 4, 4 says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Meaning what? He, he loved the people in Samaria. Yes, they were rejected by the Jews, but they weren't rejected by Jesus. And I can see Jesus' followers thinking, what? We've always traveled around Samaria. You're going to take us into that, you know, into that, into that, into that place, the other side of the tracks? You're going to take us there? And Jesus said, listen, I love them just as much as I love you. Let's go. Let's go. So they get there, and Jesus sends his disciples off to get food, or rather they leave to get food, and he sits by a well because he has an appointment with someone. He knows someone's coming out to the well that needs him. This person is a sinner. This person has made a lot of bad mistakes in their life, and Jesus is going to love on her and help her find her way to heaven. Look at verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away, from, um, were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then said the woman of Samaria unto, unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a, a woman of Samaria? And only, uh, for the Jews have no dealings. With the Samaritans. So we know that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Let me just lay out to you how peculiar this was. You have a Jewish man sitting by the well, where the people on the outskirts of town, where they would go to get their water. He's all by himself. It's the middle of the day. It's hot out. Usually uh, the women would come out in the morning, in the cool of the morning, and they would fill up their water pots, and they'd take the water back out. This woman did not want to go in the morning with, when the other women were there because she did not fit in with the other women. Uh, we'll see why in a minute. She was an outcast by them because of some lifestyle choices she had made. And so Jesus sitting there in the heat of the day by the well all by himself. She comes. It's peculiar he's sitting there, but even more peculiar, he starts talking to her. And he says to her, hey, can you get me something to drink? And she's drawing up the water and she says, it's really strange that you're a Jewish man talking to me. You know, that's not usually how this goes down. And Jesus uh, has an answer for her. Look at verse number 11. Um, again, the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw... I'm sorry, let me back up here. Uh, verse number 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, uh, uh, askest drink of me, which am a, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus say, answered and saith unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it was that said to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him... And he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou the, that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, speaking materially, physically, shall thirst again. But whosoever shall drink of the water, whosoever believeth on me, whosoever drinketh of the water, that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him uh, shall be in him a well of water, look here, springing up into eternal life. Why was this woman here? Well, we read down further and we see that this woman 
had been married and divorced five times. And the man she was living with was not her husband. It's become more and more common in the culture today for a man and woman to live together outside the bonds of marriage. Uh, Fifty years ago, a hundred years ago in America, that would have been considered scandalous. Back in Jesus' time, that was considered scandalous, that a man and woman would be living together unmarried. Boy, you were shunned by the community at large. This woman had been in and out of five marriages and was now living with a man who she was no longer, uh, wasn't even married to. And the other women of the town wanted nothing to do with her. She was labeled as the sinner of the town, the the bad woman of the town, the the, the sexually loose woman of the town. Uh, She was shunned at the market. She was shunned wherever she went. And there, this Jewish man is talking to her and he's offering to her eternal life and they have a religious discussion back and forth and it comes to her realization that this man loves me and accepts me for exactly who I am look down a little further at verse number 25 the woman saith unto him I know that Messiah cometh the Christ cometh when he is come he will tell us all things Jesus saith unto her I that speak unto thee Am he Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, took the time to sit at the well and love on someone who no one else wanted to love, accepted someone no one else wanted to accept, and upon this came his disciples and marvelled that he talked with the woman. And yet no man said, why, "What seekest thou?" or "Why talkest thou with her?" The woman then left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, "Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did." Is not this the Christ? And they went out of the city and came in. Do you understand that this woman, when she came to Jesus, he looked at her with x-ray vision. You listening now? Listen up here. He looked at her with x-ray vision. He could see every single blemish she had. He did not look at her with condemning eyes. He looked at her with loving eyes. He said, I know everything you've done but yet I love you anyway. And I'm offering you the water of eternal life. If you'll believe in me, it's yours. I meet two groups of people when I'm out inviting people to church and asking them about heaven and hell. I meet two groups of people. I meet one group of people who are very smug. They say to me, oh, I'm going to heaven because I am a good person. And I'm kind to them. But the reality is all of us are so sinful that none of us are good enough in God's eyes to get in on those merits. But you know, I meet in a second group of people. I ask them, I say, let's just pretend for a moment that you're standing in front of the gate of heaven. God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? A group of people, usually the minority of people, but they put their head down and they look at their shoes and they say something along these lines. Oh, God would never let me into heaven. I've done some horrible things in my life. There's no way I'm going to go to heaven when I die. You may be here this morning and you may feel that way. You may feel that you've done some horrible things. You have some skeletons in your closet that are ugly. You may think that God would never let you into heaven. I want to speak to you for a minute. God looks at you the way He looks at this woman in John 4. He knows every thought you've thunk. He knows every deed you've done. And He loves you anyway.
You cannot fall out of the grace of God because of your sin. God wants to forgive you. You say, how could God forgive me? I can't even forgive myself. You know, um, one of the things I admire about God is that He is, he is unlimited in every way. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. But here's a factor that doesn't get talked about much. He's all-forgiving. The truth is, there are things you could do to me where I would find it impossible to forgive you. You could hurt my children in such a way where I would never be able to forgive you, humanly speaking. But God is not bound by what we are as humans. God can forgive anything that anyone could do because He's all-forgiving. You're here today and you think, I would believe, but... I just don't think I'm worthy. My friend, he already died on the cross for your sins. You are worthy if you turn to him. Not because of who you are, but because of the character of who he is. Number one, we see the scholar that believed. Number two, the sinner that believed. Number three, quickly notice the sick man that believed. Turn to John chapter 5 and look at verse number 1. John chapter 5. And verse number 1 with me. The Bible says, In this time, uh, after this, uh, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the uh, moving of the water. For the angel went down at the certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Uh, 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 whosoever then uh, first, after troubling the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. This man had been laying here for thirty and eight years, wanting to be made whole. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said, unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him. Picture this. This man's laying here. He probably stinks. He's been laying there for 38 years and uh, uh, probably has defecated, urinated on himself, has had no one really to help him and love on him. And he's had no one to help him into this healing water or the supposed healing water. And Jesus walks up to him and kneels down by this man who's sick, uh, crippled from the legs down. And he says, Do you want to get better? Uh, you know, the man could have looked at Jesus and said, well, what do you think, man? Why do you think I'm here? Jesus said, do you want to get better? Wilt thou be made whole? And what did the man look back at him and say? The man said, I have no one to help me. He said, I have no man to love me to help me. This man was sick and he was lonely. And we're going to see, look at verse 8. Jesus saith unto him, rise Take up thy bed and walk. Now you may ask, well, where does this man believe in Jesus? I'm going to tell you where. He rose, he took up his bed, and he walked. You know, after laying there for 38 years hopeless, to actually go through the effort of getting up showed, I'm going to trust that this guy actually is making me better. Now, Jesus did this on the Sabbath day, which was against Jewish law. And the Jews were going to rake this man over the coals and try to rake Jesus over the coals. And so Jesus got out of there to avoid the Pharisees. And uh, look at verse 14. Look down at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and saith unto him, Because thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. He said, look, I don't know about your accusations, but I know this. That man, Jesus, he saved me. 
That man, Jesus, he, he, he made me whole. I look back at a time in my life where I've gone through some difficult things. I've gone through some challenging things. I look back at a time where I wasn't a child of God. I had not exercised my heart faith in Jesus. And that day that I did that, he took me from being sick in my sin and he made me whole. So we've seen the scholar that believed. We've seen the sinner that believed. People on polar opposites of the spectrum. This righteous, self-righteous man who, who was a, a very intelligent and a scholar. And then you have this woman who's rejected by society. Both of them came to Jesus and both of them believed. Both of them became a child of God the same way. Then you have this sick man who was rejected by society. No one wanted to help him. He was a cripple. And the Lord saves him. But do you know not everyone believes? Let me give you number four. The skeptics that didn't believe. The skeptics that didn't believe. Turn over to John chapter 6. While you're turning there, let me quickly give you the backstory. Jesus was God walking earth. He was able to do some supernatural things. One of the supernatural things he did is he took five loaves and two pieces, two fishes, and he divided them up, and he fed 5,000 people at one time. Boy, I would have been loved to have been there to see that. Amen? Uh, sometimes I open my refrigerator and wish I had the ability to take what was left and fill the refrigerator back up, right? Fill the cabinets back up. And uh, Jesus prayed over the food, and he had the 5,000 men sat, plus the women and the children, so there was more than 5,000 there. But he had his 12 disciples be the, uh, the servers. I wonder if they got tipped. But anyway, he uh, broke up the fish and the bread and just kept breaking up, breaking up. And the people, as you and I would be, were amazed by that. I mean, they were blown away by that. Jesus just fed all these people with the lunch from a little boy. And so Jesus sends the crowd away. He puts his disciples in a boat, and he sends them across the Sea of Galilee, and he goes up into the mountains where he's going to pray and spend time with God. Well, in the middle of the night, he walks out on the water and he uh, helps the disciples out of a, 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 a perilous situation they were in. And the next morning, Jesus is not up in the mountains. Jesus is on the other side. But the boat he was supposed to take was still left there at dock. And so all of these people that Jesus had fed, many of them rather, were waiting around for Jesus to come down to the mountain so he could feed them breakfast. They wanted another meal. And they waited and they waited and they waited. And lo and behold, he never came down. And so they said, well, he ain't here. They searched, formed a search party, looked for him, they couldn't find him. So they walk around the sea and lo and behold, there he is with his disciples. And they say to Jesus in the beginning of John 6, how'd you get over here? And Jesus says, you don't really care how I got over here. You just want me to feed you another meal. And he tells them, he says, look, you all are looking for bread. Well, look down at verse number, um, let's see here. Look down at verse number 26. Verse, verse number 26. Jesus answered them and said, so there they are on the other side of the, uh, other side of the lake. They're asking him how he got over there. And Jesus is ignoring their question and, and just going at their motive. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. You're just looking for another meal. Meal, verse 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. He's spiritualized water. Now he's spiritualizing 
food. He's, he said you believe, you get the water in John 4. He's saying you believe and you get a spiritual meal that will give you everlasting life. And then he, he goes on to say, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him, uh, uh, for him hath God the Father sealed. Speaking of himself, verse 28, then said they unto him, look here, look here, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Now this is the great question. I want you to see something here. Most religions in the world, you know what they tell you? You've got to do good to get into heaven. God is angry at you. He has His back turned to you. And if you will do this, 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 and this, checklist, 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 then God will turn from His anger and He'll love you. And if you're good enough, He will let you into heaven. But boy, you better be a good person. You better... Fill in the blank with whatever the religious obligations are. So they ask a question. Okay, Jesus, we want everlasting life. Tell us what we have to do to get everlasting life. Look at Jesus' response. Look down with me at verse number 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God. Here's the answer, that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. What are the works we have to do to get into heaven? Oh, there's only one thing you must do to get into heaven, and that is believe on Jesus to be saved. Believe on Jesus to be saved. Did these people do that? No. Jesus would go on and relate uh, eating bread to believing in Him and drinking uh, drinking the vine or drinking the wine uh, to be, uh, he would relate that to receiving him. And again, it's a parallel. It's not meant to mean that you actually eat and drink Jesus. But he said this, he said, if you want everlasting life, you need to believe and receive. Believe and receive. And they could not wrap their mind around that. Why? Because they wanted Jesus to give them something material and he was offering them something immaterial. Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is he... Uh, which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Speaking of himself, then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never thirst, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He couldn't have made it any more clear. You need to believe in me. I am the bread of life. You go down to the end of John, John chapter 6 and you look at the last couple of verses. The Bible says, Many departed from him. Many left. Why? Because these sayings were too hard for them. Let me just speak to you plain this morning. Many people come to church for the wrong reason. Many people call out to God for the wrong reason. They get themselves in a bad spot. Maybe it's their health. Maybe it's their finances. Maybe it's their relationships. And they run to church. They run to prayer out of desperation. And then when everything is better tangibly fixed. Okay, God, thanks. I know where you are next time I need you. I, I talked to a guy one time. I said, do you know you're going to have one day? He said, yeah. I said, how do you know that? He said, well, one time I was uh, in a hospital bed and I told God, I said, if you get me out of this hospital bed, I will believe in you. He said, he got me out of that hospital bed. I know that I'm going to heaven. I looked at him and I said, no, no, no. You, you don't have it right. You trusted in God to get you out of a bad physical spot, but you have a problem far worse than that. You are eternally on your way to hell. God's not looking for you to call on Him to get you out of a hospital bed. He's looking on you to call on Him to get you into heaven. 
many, many people don't seem to understand that. And they come to God because they're looking for bread. They're looking to be fed. They're looking for a physical, uh, uh, material item. And the Bible uh, teaches that God wants to offer me and you not a meal, not out of a hospital bed. He wants to offer you something that's immaterial and intangible. He wants to offer you everlasting life. Now that is intangible at this moment, but when we die, boy, it's going to become quite tangible quite quickly. You may have come in this door a skeptic. I don't know that I believe in Jesus. Let me take the next few minutes of the message. Let me take the next few minutes and try to convince you that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you that salvation is simple. Salvation is simple. Matthew chapter 18. Look at the the, the screen there. You can find the verses for the rest of the message on the screen. Follow along there. Verse 3. And said, Jesus speaking here, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted... And become as little children, ye shall not come, enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God went and got a little child and sat them amongst all these people that weren't believers. And he said, you all are scholars, you're smart, you got it all together. He said, let me tell you something. Until you can believe the way a child believes, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's so simple a child can do it. So what do you need to do? Number one, there's four things you need to understand. I'll go through these quickly, but please give me your attention. Number one, you need to understand that everyone is a sinner. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What is a sin? A sin is anything I think. It's anything I say. Anything I do that breaks the laws of God. The truth is, Everyone is a sinner. Romans 3.10 words it this way. There is none righteous. No, not one. None righteous. None righteous. You say, well, I think I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. Can I tell you that you may be good compared to me, but the standard is not me, it's God. Here's the reality. God is up here at zero sins, and all the rest of us are way down here. Now, some of us might be here. Let me move everyone see here. Some of us might be here, and some of us might be here. But the gap from here to here, and the gap from here to here, is still so large. Can I just tell you something? It really doesn't matter. If the average person committed three sins a day, which I think that's a fair thing to say, between a bad thought, a bad word, a proudful moment, three sins a day, and we were to reduce the year down to 333 days, I'm speaking intellectually smart people, amen? Hang in there. That's a thousand sins a year. I'm 37 years old. That means I've already committed at least 37,000 sins against God. The whole argument about, well, I'm a good person, God's going to let me into heaven, I don't think so. I don't think so. The Bible says we fall short of the glory of God. There's four things you need to understand. The first two lay out the problem. The last two lay out the solution. Number one, everyone is a sinner. Number two, your sin has a price. Sin has a price. Romans 6.23, the Bible says the wages or paycheck or price tag or debt of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We'll talk about that concept in the second half of the verse in just a moment. Out of another verse, let me hone in on the beginning of that verse. The wages of sin is death. I hope you're listening this morning. There is a paycheck coming to you because of your sin, and it's death. It's death. Now, I want to just ask this. 
Let's just say that every paycheck that you received from working your entire life was deferred until the very end of your life, and you got it in one check at the very end of your life. How big of a check would that be? It'd be a lot of money, wouldn't it? If you waited to the very end of your life to get all of your earnings at once, do you know every day we sin against God, and those sins are being recorded in heaven? And at the very end of your life, you're going to stand before God, and the books are going to come out with all the wrongdoing you're done, and guess what? Payday is coming. Payday is coming. I don't want to get to heaven and say, well, God, I think I was a pretty good person. God's going to say, um, hmm. hey, uh, uh, Gabriel, go pull all the books out on that guy's life. Let's open all of them up, the catalog there, the, 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 the library of books on his life. Let's see about all the things he's done wrong from a little guy all the way up. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to have to do that. But the reality is my sin has a price. What is that price? It's death. What is death? That word death means separation theologically. When we die, we're separated from our loved ones. But there's not only a death of the body, there's a death of the soul. There's a second death. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 says this. It says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. How many people do you have to kill to be a murderer? Murder. How many people do you have to murder to be a murderer? Just one. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? Just one. I fit in that verse. How many here have, have told a lie? Raise your hand if you've ever told a lie in your life. If your hand's not up, you're lying right now. All right? That joke gets a laugh every time. Okay, what's the rest of that verse say? Shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. I hate to think about this place. That's hell. Look at what the rest of the verse says, which is the second death. I don't see a way out on my own because I am a liar. And I'm probably many of those other things that verse lists. If, not, if I've not broken the law, actually, I've broken the spirit of many of those. My friend, you see, we have a problem, and that problem is sin. And God has put the price tag of sin as hell. There's no way out. On our own, there's no way out. But God has made a way out for us. How much do you have to love somebody to go to hell for them so then they can go to heaven? That's how much God loves you. The third thing you need to understand in order to go to heaven is that uh, Jesus paid your sin debt. Look at Romans 5.8. The Bible says, But God commendeth or proved or demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were living in our sinful state, while we were living our lives of sin, Christ died for us. The reality is I cannot die in your place because I am a sinner. I can only die for myself. But Jesus came to earth. He was born of a virgin named Mary. He lived 33 years on this earth. Never committed one sin. Never took anything that belonged to Him. Never told a mistruth. Never was disobedient. In no way did He do anything wrong. He was without blemish. And at 33 and a half years old, the Pharisees who were phonies, who could not stand Him, took Him and they beat Him and they mocked Him and they scoffed Him and they spit on Him and they nailed Him up on a cross but it was all in the plan of God. You see, Jesus died because the penalty of sin is death. He was dying in my place. He was dying in your place. 
Jesus said this on his way to Gethsemane where he'd be arrested. He said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. God looked ahead in time and he saw you and he said, that's my friend. And I'm going to die so they don't have to. Now, Jesus died to make it possible for everyone to go to heaven. But my friend, Matthew, tells us that not everyone is going to heaven. What separates those who go to heaven that find that narrow path from those who don't go to heaven and live on that broad path of destruction? I'm going to give it to you. And point number four is this. Believe in Christ for salvation. Believe in Christ for salvation. That brings us back to the title. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Romans 10.9 answers the question. Look here. Let's read it out loud together. Can we? Let's do that. Ready? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now let's look at that verse and let's analyze it quickly here. There are two body parts found in this verse, and there are two actions performed by those body parts. The first body part we find is the mouth. The mouth. The second one is the heart. What does the mouth do? The mouth confesses. The heart believes. The mouth confesses. The heart believes. I know many people who believe the facts about Jesus in their head, but they've not believed with their heart. They've not believed with their heart. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, words it this way, and they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved or rescued in thy house. I want to illustrate what it is to you to believe with your heart. Let's say that my family and your family go out on Long Island Sound. For a day on the water, we're fishing, we're having a good time. We've had a big lunch. Lo and behold, I fall off the edge of the boat and into the sound in a spot that's a little bit deeper. My legs begin to cramp and I'm not able to keep myself above water. And you're there and you've got a life raft in your boat. And I cry out to you in desperation. I say, save me. Save me. I'm confessing with my mouth that I need a Savior from the sound. And I'm believing in my heart that you're going to be the one that rescues me. You throw me the life raft and I grab hold of it and you pull me in and you lift me up out of the water into the boat. You will have rescued me from the peril of earthly death. You say it's not enough you see it's not enough to sit in a religious service somewhere and repeat some words after a priest or a preacher and do it out of your head. No, my friend, you must see yourself as drowning in your own sin, on your way to hell, and out of desperation from your heart, you cry out to Jesus, who's the only one capable of saving you. And you say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you, that you died on the cross in my place. Save me from hell. Save me from my sin. The way you say it doesn't matter. The words you use doesn't matter. The fact that you believe and you call out on Jesus... In the New Testament, Peter was out walking on the water with Jesus and he fell because he took his eyes off the Lord. And Peter prayed a three-word prayer. He said, Lord, save me. Shortest prayer in the Bible. Lord, save me. You know what Jesus did? He took Peter by the hand and he saved him. You don't need to be able to pray some long, eloquent prayer. What God's looking for is that you have come to grips in your heart that you're a broken sinner in need of a Savior. And you call on Him by faith, believing in your heart and you'll be saved. One last illustration, and I'll close the message this morning. The day I got married, I stood on a wedding, a church platform, and 
my pastor married me. And that day I repeated vows after the preacher. And on that day I was married. Now, there were two things that happened the day I got married. I said some words with my mouth, but down in my heart, behind those vows was a love commitment. There's a show on TV that was made popular a handful of years back. It's a reality TV show uh, entitled Married at First Sight. What a terrible concept. They take two strangers who've never seen each other, and they meet each other on the wedding day. How much can you actually mean what you're saying when you commit for better or for worse? You can't. Many people love the Lord but are not willing to voice it with their lips. They're not willing to call on Him. Other people are willing to call on Him, but they don't mean it with their heart. Listen, the Lord Jesus is looking for you to believe in your heart and through prayer confess with your mouth that you, that you believe in Him. As a four-year-old boy, I understood this truth after being raised in church three times a week for four years, and I sat on the front row of my church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in April of 1988, and I bowed my head, and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. Here's the prayer I prayed, something similar to this. I said, Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I know I deserve to go to hell when I die. Come into my heart life and save me. Forgive me my sins. Take me to heaven when I die. And you know what? That day, the books that record my sins were thrown out. And God opened up another book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And He RSVP'd my name for heaven in that book. I'm going to heaven one day, not because of who I am, but because I believed in Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. Have you believed in Him? I'm not talking about with your head. Have you believed in Him with your heart? Boy, I'd like to offer you an opportunity to do that right now. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed where we are. Out of the respect and privacy for others, please keep your head bowed and eye closed. And please sit very, very still for me. How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day in my life where I not only understood about Jesus in my head, I believed in Jesus with my heart and I called on Him to be saved. There is no question in my heart that I am on my way to heaven, not because of who I am, but because I've been forgiven. I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus has saved me. If, you, if that's your testimony and you've done that, would you signify that by raising your hand at this time? I know I'm going to heaven. I know that Jesus has saved me. For those of you that raise your hand, I'm thankful that you've made that choice. Many, many of you raise your hand. You can put them down. For those of you that did not raise your hand, let me just thank you for being honest. How many of you here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, I don't know whether or not I've believed in Jesus or not. If I were to die, I don't know if I would go to heaven. I understand things a lot better now than I did an hour ago. But the reality is I just don't know. If that's you... Would you just slip up your hand right where you are? I don't know, or you, maybe you do know that you're not going. How many say, I don't know, I'm going to heaven? Would you raise your hand right where you are? I see your hands, many hands, many, many hands. Here's what I'd like you to do. If you raised your hand just a moment ago, would you look up here at me? Just those that raised their hand, would you look up here at me just for a moment? Thank you for raising your hand. I want to help you to put your faith in Christ if you're ready to do so. I would like to lead you in a phrase-by-phrase prayer like like when I got married, phrase by phrase through a wedding vows. When I got saved, phrase by phrase prayer. But you know what? I just want to tell you, it's not the words that are going to save you. It's the faith in your heart. God hears your prayer, but he sees your heart. I'm going to lead you in that prayer. You can pray that prayer right under your breath, right where you are. 
Please bow your head and close your eyes. And under your breath, repeat this prayer after me. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve to go to hell when I die. I believe you died on the cross in my place. Forgive me my sin and save my soul. My faith is in you and in you alone to save me. In Jesus' name.